The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. The news has been full of so-called 3D printed guns the last couple of weeks. There's been action in the AG's office and in the legislature this week. Katie Lannon, what what prompted this situation? So earlier this summer, Sam, the federal government settled a lawsuit that had been brought against the State Department, which was over their decision that the company Defense Distributed could not post these, I don't know what you want to call them, blueprints, plans, tutorials for 3D printable guns. Um, Of course, all guns are 3D, as you pointed out to me earlier today. (laughs) But these ones are made using 3D printed technology. That decision that they can't post them online was effectively reversed by the settlement. So the company would be allowed to post their files. But that hasn't actually happened yet. A group of attorneys general, including Maura Healy, filed suit and a judge granted a temporary restraining order that's currently blocking it. And Healy in late July also wrote to the U.S. Attorney General and the Secretary of State, asking them to withdraw from that settlement. But on Friday, she wrote again to Jeff Sessions and Mike Pompeo calling for immediate removal of those downloadable gun blueprints that she said had been illegally posted on several other websites anyways. Healy uh, this week also reached out to base staters with the notice warning about different ways that 3D printed guns could violate state law. Um, are, Are they illegal in Massachusetts, Katie? So one of the things that happened this week is Rep. David Linsky, um, who's been kind of one of the main author of of gun legislation in the House, he filed a bill that would expressly make it illegal to 3D print a gun without having a federal firearms manufacturing license. And that bill would also require that any legally printed guns receive an official serial number and be subject to the same licensing rules as the traditional ones. The gun laws in Massachusetts don't specifically speak to what is really a relatively new technology. But according to to Healy, who this week sent out a notice with Public Safety Secretary Daniel Bennett and groups representing police chiefs and district attorneys, there are still a handful of ways that making, selling, or owning a 3D printed gun here could be illegal. Now, for one, the list of guns that are approved for sale in Massachusetts does not include any 3D printed firearms. And guns made totally out of plastic or otherwise undetectable by x-ray machines are considered unlawful. And then, of course, there's the basic requirement that you need a license to possess or carry a gun, and that would still apply to a gun however it's made. Uh, What's the future for Linsky's bill, does it look like? That's a really good question. And when I spoke to him this week, he pointed out that, you know, he's been around the the statehouse for a long time and knows that there's a difficulty inherent in both, A, passing a bill in informal sessions, and B, passing any sort of gun-related legislation. So I guess we'll have to see what happens there. But it's certainly something we could see pop up in January if it doesn't come to head before then. Sure. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Sam. A legislative effort to respond to the Supreme Court's Janus ruling crumbled at the 11th hour last month. Matt Murphy, you took a look this week at the death of that bill. Why did the death of the bill stand out so much? Hi, Sam. That's right. 
Earlier this week, I took a stab at trying to dive in and figure out exactly why that bill, which had so much support, it seemed, going into the final days of sessions, didn't get through ultimately to the governor's desk. And I think the reason why it came perhaps as such a surprise was because over two months ago at the state Democratic Party convention, it was House Speaker Robert DeLeo who stood before uh, the delegates and told them that if the Supreme Court ruled against the unions in this case, that the House would stand ready to react and make sure that unions could remain strong. And as you know, the, the court ruling essentially prohibits public sector unions from charging non-members fees, which was key to the financial strength of many uh, in, in the labor movement here in Massachusetts. So why couldn't the Speaker follow through in the end? Well, as we've seen, the Speaker's style uh, for a, a number of issues and pushing through legislation with his members is building consensus. He values consensus greatly, uh, both among uh, members of the House, Democrats and Republicans, but also among outside uh, stakeholders and interest groups. And in this case, there was one holdout we found out. The Teamsters Union uh, remained opposed to the bill that passed the Senate uh, in the final hours on July 31st, even though the AFL-CIO... Uh, NAGE, uh, the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and a number of the other large uh, public unions in Massachusetts had rallied behind this bill. Now, late on that final night of formal sessions last month, uh, the news service uh, witnessed uh, a stakeholder trying to get the speaker's attention at his office. Yeah, this issue is not going away. And we did that night. We saw former House member, former senator, and now AFL-CIO president Steve Tolman knocking on the speaker's door. As you remember that night, the speaker's office was locked, but people were coming and going. And uh, Steve Tolman tried to knock on that door and get in to see the speaker as time was winding down in the session, but he was turned away by a senior DeLeo aide. And when I spoke to him this week, he was none too pleased at the death of this bill. Uh, he said uh, quite a pissed, frankly, uh, is how he described his mood. And I don't think you're going to see this issue going away anytime soon. Senator Joe Boncori vowing to push forward and, and try and uh, achieve the consensus among the labor groups, uh, either if it can't get done in informal sessions, uh, then to take this up in January when the legislature returns. All right. Thanks, Matt. Now, you might not have heard, you might not have seen the usual customary TV ads, but this weekend saved 6% on most purchases anywhere in Massachusetts. State lawmakers agreed to freeze the state's sales tax Saturday and Sunday, giving people a chance to save some money on back-to-school shopping or getting an item they've had their eye on for a while. But Colin Young, you took a spin back through the news service archives. What a rich archives that is. Indeed. Uh, you found out some more about the origins of the sales tax holiday. What did you find? Hey, Sam. Just wanted to get a disclaimer out of the way uh, at the top here that uh, all of this is contingent upon Governor Charlie Baker actually signing this weekend sales yes. tax holiday into law. Uh, we're recording this uh, uh, about quarter of three on Friday afternoon, and uh, the governor has not yet signed the provision of the Economic Development Bill to authorize this weekend's sales tax holiday, though his office assures us he will, in fact, do so. So sales tax holidays have become somewhat common in Massachusetts. This year will be the 12th time in the last 15 years in which the state has waived the sales tax for shoppers. Uh, the last time we had a sales tax holiday was 2015. 
Uh, the early reference, the earliest reference that is to sales tax holiday in the news service uh, came in 2001, and the news service reported then that the idea was to spend the then 5% sales tax for the last week of August when families do lots of back-to-school shopping. But the first sales tax holiday was actually a single-day holiday, held Saturday, August 14, 2004. That one was authorized by Governor Mitt Romney when he signed an economic stimulus package the previous November. So plenty of uh, advanced warning on that one. Sure. Uh, the first holiday was estimated to have saved consumers about $10.1 million. And Rep. John Binienda, who was the House Revenue Committee chairman at the time, said that retailers that day, quote, did Christmas Eve numbers in August. Uh, and disagreements between the House and the Senate have been part of the discussion of sales tax holidays for pretty much as long as we've had sales tax holidays. The Senate initially proposed doing the holiday in December when people shop for holiday gifts. Uh, and that led to complaints from the House, which favored holding the holiday in August when retail is traditionally slower. The next year, in 2005, the House okayed another single-day tax holiday, and the Senate responded by approving a two-day holiday, hence the tax-free weekend. Uh, in 2008, as interest in a fifth consecutive sales tax holiday grew, then-House Speaker Sal DeMacy said it would be, quote, very, very unlikely that the state would freeze the sales tax as tax revenues began to falter. Uh, under pressure, DeMacy eventually changed course, and there was a 2008 sales tax holiday. Uh, 2009, amid the financial crisis, the state opted against the sales tax holiday for the first time since 2004. An August sales tax holiday uh, was established then each year uh, from 2010 through 2015, the last one. This year, the sales tax holiday came up somewhat late. Governor Baker had proposed making it an annual event, but this House and Senate both left the holiday out of their economic development bills. In each branch, the tax-free weekend was then added back in as an amendment. So it's been a few years, and uh, this year's sales tax holiday came about in sort of a roundabout way, but uh, remind us, Colin, why going forward in future years, uh, things are going to be on firmer ground. Yeah, going forward, uh, the sales tax holiday will be a permanent fixture on the calendars of shoppers and business owners here in Massachusetts. The so-called grand bargain law that Governor Baker signed in late June requires that the legislature, starting in 2019, uh, pick a weekend in August to hold the sales tax holiday and to pick that weekend by June 15th. If lawmakers don't pick a uh, weekend for the sales tax holiday by June 15th, the commissioner of the Department of Revenue will do it by July 1st. Gotcha. Cool. Enjoy the weekend, Colin. Uh, got any shopping plans, pr provided that the tax holiday is signed into law? Uh, no shopping plans for me this weekend, but uh, I'm sure plenty of folks will be out there. Sure thing. We'll see you. See you. When the Senate changed presidents two weeks ago, one of the effects was a change in payroll. And Andy Metzger, you looked this week at how that particularly affects the uh, now former Senate president, Harriet Chandler. Andy, how great a pay cut was Harriet Chandler initially looking at? Um, well, if she did not now have the title of Senate President Emerita, which comes with a $35,000 stipend, her pay would have gone down roughly $45,000. But she did get that um, new title, which is a leadership position. And so she is looking at a pay cut of about 10000 on an annual basis for no longer being the Senate president. Now, pay raises 
were in some respects a real defining feature of this very strange session that came to a close so far as formal sessions at the end of July and will end um, finally at the beginning of January. Um, Former Senate President Stan Rosenberg and Speaker DeLeo both um, pushed through a controversial pay raise bill and that boosted the salaries for leadership positions like um, now this Senate President Emerita position. And and what exactly for, what's the stipend exactly on the President Emerita? President Emerita is $35,000 um, as a stipend. The President receives an $80,000 stipend, as does the Speaker. Um, so for this $35,000 stipend, what exactly does a President Emerita do? Well, that's a great question, and that's what people usually say when they don't have a great answer. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) The caucuses are closed. That's where uh, supposedly a lot of the leadership happens. Uh, We don't see any of that. There are a number of leadership positions on the Democrat and Republican side in the Senate that, frankly, you you wonder, what do they do? Because there's only so many members. There's 40 total. (laughs) Um, So who knows? Um, She'll be paid the same as a lot of other floor leaders. She, for a period of time, eight months, did lead the Senate. Um, So I'd say based on the name of the position, Senate President Emerita, it's in part a thank you for what she did earlier this session. Hmm. Well, uh, thank you, Andy. This is your final day with the Statehouse News Service after seven years? Uh, Just about six and a half, and a fine time for me to ask about my Statehouse News Service reporter emeritus uh, stipend. (coughs) It might be a little bit shy of (laughs) 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 35,000. 32 and a half. How's that? Um, I'll I'll speak to uh, the powers that be, Andy, but uh, no promises. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Sam. All right. Thanks. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.